Welcome to our October edition of Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller, a senior economist at the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And our guest today is Ben Keyes, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, you and your co-author, Philip Mulder, have recently released a paper on sea level rise and how it affects housing markets. Can you walk us through some of your, your key findings from that paper? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me today. So. The paper is uh, really an exploration of um, how housing and mortgage markets um, incorporate new information about risk. And um, climate risk is, um, you know, a very long-term, um, long-term challenge for um, these coastal areas of the U.S. And one of the things we were struck by is um, such a large fraction of U.S. households live um, in a coastal county. It's um, over 40% of all households are in a coastal county. And so in thinking about the kinds of risks that these households are facing, um, one of the things that we're wondering about is, well, are these risks already being incorporated into housing markets? And importantly, it's, it's not enough to just look at prices in these markets, because um, as we know from a, a history of studying housing markets, um, prices are not necessarily the thing that equilibrate housing markets at a point in time. Houses are durable assets and sellers can always decide to just uh, withdraw their, their listing, um, stay in the home a little bit longer if they don't see the price that they're looking for. So we wanted to dig into the transaction data and really get a sense of whether you're seeing changes in transaction patterns in these housing markets. And historically, there's been a lead lag pattern in previous ups and downs in housing markets where um, you see a divergence from, uh, from trend in terms of uh, housing market transactions. Uh, preceding declines in prices. And so what you see is there's a slow a market slowdown in terms of the liquidity of houses, in terms of how quickly they're turning over, um, and that precedes a decline in prices. And so what we do in the paper is we look at coastal communities in Florida, and we focus on that as, a, I guess, the canary in the coal mine, to, to mix metaphors. Um, and we look at uh, coastal um, census tracts, and we compare um, the most exposed um, tracks based on um, NOAA's um, sea level rise uh, measure. Um, and we, we put that uh, comparison of the most exposed tracks with the least exposed coastal tracks. So similar coastal amenities, but one is lower lying and the other one is, um, is a little bit more elevated. Now, in terms of transaction volume and in terms of prices, these two areas tracked each other almost perfectly during the housing boom of, and bust of the 2000s. Um, but what we find is that it's starting in 2013, there's a sharp divergence in transaction volumes in the most exposed census tracts. And so you see a, a decline in, in transactions that grows over time um, to about 20% uh, gap between um, the least exposed and most ex exposed by 2018. So just to jump in for a second, why why 2013? What what's special about the about the 2013 date that we start seeing this divergence? Yeah, I think there are a few things that happened in, in 2013. So a big one is Hurricane Sandy, which hits the Northeast in 2012. And if you're thinking of the potential buyers in Florida, um, they're going to be frequently coming from the Northeast, um, maybe have experienced Hurricane Sandy and are now thinking, hey, wait a minute, maybe living in a flood zone is not such a great idea. Um, so it may be partly that information about buyers um, and their lived experiences. 2013 also is also notable because it's the year that the new IPCC report comes out um, that sort of sharply increases the, the forecasts for sea level rise. So there's a revision to, um, to the climate forecasts that um, really changes the discussion in the US 
and especially in Florida. So we looked into the newspapers in Florida and you start to see the kind of headlines that we're now accustomed to today, like rising waters will reshape the Tampa Bay coastline, that kind of thing. You don't really see a lot of those articles prior to 2013. So if you look at the surveys around this time, like um, the Yale Climate Opinion Surveys or Pew does a survey, 2013 is really an inflection point for awareness around sea level rise. And we show that in the paper with uh, a change in the Google trends that people searching for sea level rise in Florida begins to increase at that time too. Okay, so we have, it seems that we have a series of events in 2013 that provide new information or reveals new information to, uh, to buyers and sellers. And just to make sure I, I understood correctly, mm -hmm. uh, what you're saying is that in these coastal towns that have similar amenities, you know, similar draws to, uh, to potential buyers, the areas that are more exposed to sea level rise all of a sudden start experiencing declines in sales. That's exactly right. And you said this was a canary in the coal mine, right? It's, it's a signal of worse things to come. Can you, can you explain the, the worst things to come when we start seeing the slowdown in sales transactions? Yeah, I mean, I think, so usually the slowdown in sales transactions suggests that there's a disconnect between buyers and sellers in a market. Um, if fewer transactions are occurring, it means that um, those negotiations over price, those hagglings over what's the right price for a property, they're just not reaching a, a, an agreement. Um, and that disconnect means at some point, um, generally, uh, sellers are going to need to reduce their prices um, in, order to, uh, in order to unload their properties and maybe at a price that they're not happy about. And, and so what we observe in, in the study is um, tracking prices. Again, prices followed each other very closely in these two types of communities during the housing boom and bust. Um, and at tw in 2013, basically nothing happens to prices. Um, in both markets, prices continue to rise um, fairly steadily. And it's only a few years later, 2016, 17, and then especially starting in 2018, um, that you start to see prices begin to diverge. And now with our prices up through the beginning of, of 2020, sort of in the pre-COVID era, now prices are somewhere between five and 10% lower um, in these most exposed markets. And so you see this significant delay um, in how long it takes for the sort of price signals um, in the market to catch up to where we were already getting signals from the transaction side and looking at transaction volumes. So just, just to clarify, is it that the prices in these more affected areas are growing more slowly or they're actually declining? Yeah, they're growing more slowly in terms of prices, but the number of transactions have fallen in an absolute sense. So, okay. you know, in the paper, we're careful to distinguish between relative and absolute comparisons. The, the pricing comparisons are, are relative. Um, the, the transaction comparisons are both relative and absolute. That in most of the, in the on average for these markets, um, the number of transactions um, and the transaction volume is lower than it was in 2013. So you drew a comparison in, in your paper to the 2008 financial crisis. And you referred to the potential that housing markets in these high risk areas might be a bubble. Can you? Can you elaborate on that? What, how would this be a bubble uh, in these, these high-risk areas? Yeah, so I think the comparison is, um, is really thinking about market dynamics over the short term and the long term. So, um, you know, climate change is this very slow moving, um, you know, slow moving uh, creature that, that is sort of slowly, we're slowly gaining awareness and understanding of how it operates, um, kind of like a horror movie, right? We're like slowly learning about the monster and the effects that it can have. The, the cycle of the 2000s was much more abrupt. Um, but even there, what we saw was this divergence between transaction volumes and prices 
um, where there was still a gap of one and a half or two years where transaction volumes were falling in Florida before you saw a real meaningful decline in prices. Um, and so there was a real gap there and this change in transaction volumes um, was a really strong leading indicator um, that prices were going to, to react. In terms of using the word bubble, it's, you know, that's often a loaded term in, in economics. Um, I think, you know, partly it's because we are seeing prices continue to rise um, while relatively, you know, rising more slowly. Um, prices are still rising in many, many of these coastal areas. Not all. There are some places where we're seeing absolute declines in price. Um, but I think, you know, the challenge here for a lot of these coastal communities is that in the long run, um, in the absence of substantial uh, mitigation efforts, big um, infrastructure projects like seawalls, like raising the roads, changing the um, changing the drainage systems, um, many of these properties will be inundated over the next 50 to 100 years. And so at that point, if we think that their value will be somewhere close to zero, um, if they are actually underwater, um, then we have to think about, well, how are we getting from point A to point B, right? How are we getting from their prices today or their prices in 2013 when when this information became more, more, um, more salient and became more accessible to the average um, homeowner, homeowner in, in Florida who might read the newspaper, um, how are we gonna get from those prices to these prices? And instead we're seeing prices continue to rise. So in that sense, you know, it's a question of whether prices are reflecting that long-term fundamental. And, and I think it's a hard question to answer because um, you know, for most folks, um, their horizon in terms of how long they plan to stay in a home is relatively brief. So they might stay in the home for 10 years or 15 years. Um, and so some of these big uh, risks that might not hit until 2100, um, albeit gradually, um, may not necessarily be realized over their horizon of home ownership. Mm -hmm. um, the question then becomes, well, who's the next buyer? Who's going to buy this property in 10 or 15 years? And how do we think about these markets reacting in this dynamic way? And so one of the things we're really emphasizing in the paper is, it's important to trace out the dynamics of, of these markets to try to understand um, how we're going to get from point A to point B. So in your paper, you also talk about the role of mortgage lenders and the role of insurers. And it would seem to be that these actors know more about the, the industry, know more about the dynamics. They should be more sophisticated than individual buyers. How are they reacting or are they reacting to the potential for climate risk in these areas where home values, as you mentioned, might at some point in the future, you know, go to zero, which means that, you know, prior to that point, these homes will be harder and harder to sell. And prior to that, that means that they'll be making loans on homes that, you know, might, might no longer be as valuable as, as the underlying uh, mortgages. This was exactly my hypothesis going into the, this project. Um, and one of the things that surprised me the most, um, which is always fun in doing research when you find something that that upsets your prior. And I, I thought that lenders would be, um, to your point, um, have more sophistication in terms of access to information, in terms of access to climate models, um, that they would be able to better backwards induce from this, um, you know, zero value in some future date and sort of unwind that to today. So I really thought that the lenders would be the ones driving the, the patterns that we observe, that we'd see very different lending standards, denial rates, um, that we'd see very different behavior in the refinancing market where lenders now may become more wary about refinancing some of these loans. And instead we find a, you know, something very close to zero response from lenders. It doesn't look like they're doing much in the way of differential denials in these census tracts based on the Humda data. 
there's no difference in the refinancing volume of loans. So they're refinancing at exactly the same rates in these two places, despite the change in transaction volumes. And it doesn't seem like there's much difference in the way of securitization. So these lenders are equally likely to hold these loans on their books or, or offload them. And, and that really created a puzzle for us. And we talked to some lenders and we, we thought about this um, in detail. And I think the story is really that there's two big federal programs that insulate lenders from this type of risk, at least in the short term, given the kinds of contracts that are being written. So one is securitization through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, Fannie and Freddie don't price regional risk. Um, and that's a, something I've studied in earlier work um, in the housing boom and bust, um, but it's true in the climate sense as well. There's no difference in price um, from Fannie and Freddie's perspective if you're taking out a loan on the coast versus a loan um, that's 10 miles inland um, versus a loan in the middle of Iowa, right? Those are all gonna be priced exactly the same. Um, and so from a lender standpoint, they're really insulated from that type of risk if they're really just dependent on what's the price that Fannie and Freddie will pay for the loan. The, the second program is the, the flood insurance program, the NFIP. And that program um, is going to insure basically any properties uh, first $250,000 worth uh, of losses. And so from a lender standpoint, they think, well, that gives us a pretty big cushion in terms of protection over the short term. So, you know, to the extent that we don't think these properties are going to be literally inundated in the next 10 or 15 years, the likely duration of a mortgage, um, either by securitizing the loan through Fannie and Freddie or um, simply relying on, on the insurers. Um, and we know there's been a lot of studies that have shown that the uh, flood insurance um, maps are, are out of date, that there's a lot of politically driven boundaries that are drawn rather than scientific boundaries. And the, the market's sort of awaiting this um, risk rating 2.0, which is now scheduled to be rolled out in 2021. We'll see politically whether that's um, feasible or not. So I think there's these two big federal programs that, that really insulate lenders from um, from needing to react to these types of risks directly. All right, so let me say something that's perhaps a little controversial. Have Great. we have we socialized risk? Have we socialized risk-taking where we've created this moral hazard mm -hmm. where you know, people might live in fire-prone areas where their, their, their homes may, may get destroyed, where people might live along coasts subject to sea level rise where their homes may get destroyed, but collectively, we have decided to say, it's all right, take that risk because we have socialized the dangers of people taking that risk. So, so that's my controversial thought. I just wanted to, to, to get your reaction. Uh, it's, it's actually not controversial at all, right? I think this is just the idea of cross-subsidization in insurance markets. And when you're using, using a national pool of say flood insurance policies, I am actually in Philadelphia, my property is technically in a flood zone, um, a couple of blocks from the Schuylkill River here. Um, my flood insurance policy cross subsidizes the insurance policies of those on the coast. Um, and that's sort of the choices that have been made in these markets. And so when Fannie and Freddie choose not to price regional risk and predictable regional risk, um, they're cross subsidizing from the safer areas to the riskier areas. So those loans in Iowa um, are more expensive um, otherwise, than they otherwise would be. And the loans on the coasts are, are cheaper than they otherwise would be. And so it's absolutely the, the case that we're cross-subsidizing these types of risks. And the question is always, you know, when is there going to be political will to, um, to break that cross-subsidization? When are we going to say, it doesn't make sense to continue subsidizing development uh, on the coasts. It doesn't make sense to continue subsidizing insurance prices on the coast, especially when we see the cost of 
um, so many homes that are repeat users of this insurance that the, the home is flooded and they rebuild and it's flooded and they rebuild. It's exactly those kinds of things that um, that is being cross subsidized through these markets. And so this is one of the questions that really motivates me is thinking about this type of risk based pricing. And when we think about the trade offs between um, in, in housing and mortgage markets in particular, but also more generally, when we're thinking about the kinds of risks that we we want to steer people away from. Um, we need to actually price those risks directly. So they get that market signal of, of price and say, hey, wait, maybe it doesn't make sense to build on the coast. Maybe it doesn't make sense to, um, to redevelop this home and, and we, should, um, we should adapt more aggressively. Um, but at the same time, there are issues related to access. And one of the things we note in the paper is that um, in the higher poverty coastal tracks, um, right? Like not every coastal um, area of Florida is, is the wealthy community that we sort of have in the back of our minds mm -hmm. um, when we're thinking about Florida coastlines. Um, some of those wealthy communities have seen really large downturns in, in transaction volumes and in fact prices already. And so um, we need to think about access as well. And I think there's some, some challenging trade-offs there when we think about pricing risk versus affordability and accessibility. So you mentioned the politics, right? The political will to change incentives and price signals. And I wanna bring up the, this article from the New York Times. Uh, so the New York Times wrote this article about your, your sea level rise paper. Uh, and then they interviewed several local real estate agents and mayors in Florida. And they seem to be dismissive of your findings. And you know they, they talked about how wary they were of relating climate risk to home prices. Um, and so here I actually want to get, you know, your, your take on what are the political incentives? And do you think that the political incentives are such that we won't actually get efficient market price signals in the near term? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, based on that article, it sounds like I'm persona non grata in a few towns <laughs> in, in coastal Florida. I'll have to wear a disguise when I go down there. But, you know, I think that at the moment, the sellers, the real estate agents, the, the, local, the local mayors, um, they all have big incentives um, to be dismissive of this issue, right? They're talking their book, which is, uh, you know, we want to sell more properties in this area. We want to sell them for a higher price. We want to keep the tax, tax base high. Um, the data just speaks otherwise, which is that these areas are seeing a decline in transactions and in, in, in you're seeing at least a slowdown in prices and that means a slowdown in the tax base. And so, you know, I, I think there's going to be a real tension here, which is um, there's going to need to be um, large, large scale infrastructure projects, um, you know, large scale, um, uh, large scale projects that are going to require um, tapping into that tax base. Um, in order to pay for these kinds of projects. And it's gonna come back to your, your issue of socialization or cross-subsidization. Is, is the federal government going to pay um, to build the seawalls in these communities or are the communities going to have to fund them themselves? And is, so there, there becomes these tensions between the, the sort of local policy actors and the state and the feds in terms of thinking about who should bear these risks. And, and I think, um, again, it, it comes back to the question of, as I said before, sort of, at what point do people get fed up and say, we're not going to cross subsidize anymore. We're not gonna to pay to, to bail these folks out. I think it's interesting though, that as you have potentially more and more divergence about climate risk in terms of um, you know, whether climate, uh, climate change is real, um, it's become this political football and you see a really sharp divergence in terms of political affiliation and you know, beliefs in, in climate science, um, which is a real shame and I think you're going to get sort of an increasingly group of entrenched folks who are these climate optimists who think that it's not going to happen to them, 
or their community. And, and at that point, then you're just going to have a tougher and tougher time finding people to buy into those, those communities. And those are the communities that are going to, to do the least to prepare um, and be, have the least sort of political willingness to, to really spend to protect these valuable assets. And so there's going to be some interesting dynamics going forward in terms of you know, both the political parties um, and then at the sort of micro level, um, the residents of these communities and whether they're going to be willing to spend the money and say, yes, we want a special, um, a special property tax to build a new seawall um, or to upgrade our infrastructure. All right, well, thank you, Ben. I think that's the time that we have. Uh, we really appreciate you, you discussing this with us. This has, uh, I realize the paper that, that you have is on Florida, but it has huge implications nationally uh, to, to California, especially uh, in terms of uh, sea level rise issues here, but also in terms of fire risk here. Uh, and it's you know, something for, for all of us to consider in, in uh, these coming years as we think about uh, housing market policies uh, and also climate policies in general. Uh, in terms of the impacts they will have uh, on, on our housing, on, on our wealth, uh, on our assets uh, as, um, as the decade progresses. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun.